Amen, amen. I'm so glad that you've joined us, those of you who are a part of the Neighborhood Church, and those of you who are tuning in to see what we're all about tonight. Although unusual, is a great night to see what's happening at the Neighborhood Church, because we're going to be continuing in our series about our five core practices. But before we get to it, I want to invite you to grab a couple things. The first is to grab a journal or something on which to take notes and a pen, obviously, so that you can take notes. The other things I want you to grab, if you are so inclined and if you're a follower of Jesus, though we are apart, I would love to invite you to grab a little piece of bread and a sip of wine or a sip of juice because though we are not together physically, we are still knit together by the Spirit of God, part of God's family, and so I would love it if we could take communion together, though we're apart, because God is still present to us, and we can be present to Him. So with all that said, let's dive into our series and our core practices. This evening, we're looking at our third core practice, which is to grow disciples. If you were to go to our website and click the About Us tab, you would see about our beliefs that we confess the classic creeds of Orthodox Christianity. These creeds are several hundred years old, and they are what Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, Christians from all over the world can say yes and amen to. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, and so on and so on. We confess the classic creeds. If you were to keep clicking on the About Us tab, you would see our core convictions. And those are flavored by a movement in church history called the Anabaptist movement. And you'll see these seven core convictions that kind of give a little bit more shape to the unique contribution, the unique flavor of the neighborhood church. However, were you to take those creeds and take those core convictions, and you were to take those beliefs and really drill down as to how those beliefs inform our behavior, you get our core practices. The first is to follow Jesus. The second is to love neighbor. And tonight, as I mentioned, is to grow disciples. We didn't invent these. It's just our language and our images around what every church ought to be up to. And this evening, we're going to explore growing disciples. So if you haven't already, grab that journal and a pen. Grab a piece of bread and some juice or wine. But before we really get into it, I need to tell you about a new addition to the Wood family. This new addition was an addition we never thought we needed, but now we can't live without. It's only been a week, and yes, friends, this is Pepper. Pepper, if you look closely on your screen, is a one-eyed dog. She's a one-eyed, one-year-old Shih Tzu mix from East Texas, and we weren't exactly in the market for a dog until it went zero to 60, my friends as these things usually happen, and we found her and invited her into our life, and within just a few days, we were adopting her. We brought her home last 
Sunday. She spent the week with us. We first knew her as Binky. That's what the foster mom was calling her. And because I told you she's a one-eyed dog, I voted for the name Winky. But the girls and cooler heads prevailed when we realized, let's not name her after a joke or her different ability as a one-eyed dog. So we landed on Pepper. She gets adopted, she gets renamed, and she gets brought into a new family. She had a crazy couple weeks from the streets to shelter to foster care. And we find her in this new family being brought along into a new way, a new rhythm that's different from what she knew before. And nowhere has this been more clear than this morning. This morning, we were just barely stirring And we've been having little Pepper sleep in a pet bed on the ground next to my nightstand, just within arm's reach when I'm laying in our bed. And at 6 a.m. this morning, little Pepper can take it no more, and she jumps into our bed right in between us, ready to start the day, ready for some attention. And Amy rolls over and says, Pepper, it's Saturday. Why did Pepper jump up on our bed at 6 a.m. this morning? Because Pepper has been in our family, and she's already been formed by our family rhythm. Pepper jumped up into our bed at 6 a.m. because every day this week, we start to stir and get up and get the girls up and get moving around 6 a.m. Our family has already formed her. This is a little bit, actually, it's a lot of it of what discipleship is about. Our third core practice is this. We commit to invite people into a relationship with Jesus by baptizing, teaching, and sending them on mission. Now you're wondering and taking notes and saying, okay, but what does this have to do with Pepper? Did Adam just throw these pictures up there so that we can all be entranced by her one-eyed cuteness? Or as Miguel, who's running our sound, said, wow, it only took you one week to throw her up on the screen and use her as a sermon illustration. Let me tell you, friends, there's a reason I'm connecting Pepper's story to our third core practice. And I want you to go with me here. Let's zoom out and not think about little puppies. Let's think about people. And let's think about how much like this little Pepper, we are sought and invited by a God who longs for us to enter into his family. So they're invited into a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, and then indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Number one, we're invited. Then what happens? We get adopted into God's kingdom. Maybe we came from the streets and the shelter, but we're brought into a new kingdom, a new reality. And then what happens next is we get renamed. It's not Binky or Winky. It's not even Pepper. When we're talking about people who've been invited and adopted, they get renamed not through the transferring of paperwork, but through the transferring of the waters of baptism. What's the name that we adopt through the waters of baptism? You're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You should note already that our third core practice echoes Jesus' words in the Great Commission. 
where he says, go into all nations and give them the name, the family name, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're invited, adopted, renamed. Then they're brought into a new family, which is called church. For better or for worse, the church is the greenhouse in which we are welcomed to rub elbows and shoulders with others so that we might be formed because ultimately, we're not just brought into a new family, we're brought along a new way. Our first core practice to follow Jesus means that we're to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus, so that we might take on the rhythm and character of Jesus. We get grown into his image, and that's the reason why Pepper jumped into our bed at 6 a.m., because she had been with us to learn from us how to live like us. Because she was invited, adopted, renamed, brought into a new family, and brought along a new way. We commit to invite people, not just to church, but into a relationship with Jesus. Through the waters of baptism in which they're renamed. And we're teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught And then we send them out as these new disciples to go make other disciples more and more. And the thing about the Great Commission you can find in Matthew 28, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus doesn't just send us on our own. He says, and behold, I am with you always until the job is done. I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is where we turn to a wonderful reminder from Jesus that whatever it means to grow and to go, we never do so apart from his power and presence. So I want to read a short passage of scripture from a longer study. Jesus' farewell address. Kelly read from John 14 earlier, and that's part of the same message to his disciples before they are to go out and carry on his kingdom work. We're going to look at John 15, so turn there or you can join us on the screen in a moment. We're going to look at these words from Jesus, and then I'm going to quickly give you three truths about growth, because what Jesus is talking about in John 15 is growth, and that whatever you do to grow or go, it's never apart from the power and presence of the one who has sent us. So we're going to hear these words from Jesus. We're going to get three truths about growth in him. And along the way, the reason I want you to journal is because we're going to ask some serious, we're going to ask some serious reflection questions. Then there's going to be some more questions that you can type into the comments. But first, I would invite you to type as I read a word or phrase from John 15, 1 to 5 that stands out to you. You with me? Verse 1 of chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. Your Bible might say cleans, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean, or pruned, because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain or abide or make your dwelling in me, as I also remain, abide, dwell in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. 
It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. What word or phrase stuck out to you? What word or phrase invites you? I hope that these words from Jesus about growth will help us and encourage us in this week as we turn to these three truths about our growth in him. The first is this. Growth happens to the degree that you are rooted, sustained, and strengthened in Jesus, our source of life. Or, as Jesus says, the vine, the true vine. Growth happens to the degree to which you're rooted, sustained, and strengthened in Jesus, our source of life. Imagine the scene of Jesus' illustration. It would have been much more well-known in the Mediterranean world that was much more familiar with agriculture than I am today. Imagine the gardener walking through rows and rows of a vineyard inspecting the vines. In fact, it was a common theme in the Old Testament to speak of God as a gardener and the people of God as the vineyard. So they're hearing this, these disciples of Jesus in this last meal, and they're hearing Jesus speak in terms they're familiar with, both in everyday life and with Scripture. Imagine this gardener walking and inspecting the vines and the branches that are dried and dead or dying. What does any good gardener do? He snaps them off and he'll save them for kindling or he'll simply put them down on the ground. Why? Because what this gardener understands with a dead branch is that the absence of fruit means the absence of life. Those who have ears to hear and eyes to see might understand what Jesus will explore later in the passage when he's speaking of this dichotomy of branches that aren't bearing fruit and those that are. But the branches that are green and fruitful, they're alive because what? They're drawing life from the vine. You know what happens when you pluck that dandelion or that weed? It looks real pretty when your four-year-old brings it up to you, but what happens in about 40 minutes? That thing is withered. Why? Because it's disconnected from the vine. But when the gardener walks the rows of his vineyard and he sees the fruit, it doesn't take a botanist to understand the process of growth that happens from the root out. Understand... That if you feel fruitless, if you feel drained, there is a sense in which we are growing in a fallow, difficult environment. The winds that are blowing across the vineyard of our community and our culture are not agreeable to growth. And that's why it's even more important that we remain rooted and sustained and strengthened in Jesus, our source of life. 
I want you to understand that when Jesus will send his disciples to make new disciples, what they're doing first and foremost is announcing the good news that Jesus is Lord and that you're to give your life to him and find his life given to you in return. I heard it said this week from Pastor Rich Viotas from New Life Community in Queens. I don't know if this phrase originated with him, but I would love for you to look at it here and just let it wake you up. He said, the gospel is not about making bad people good or good people better. The gospel is about making dead people alive. Understand that whatever it means to say growing disciples, the only life that happens to breathe into branches to bear fruit, it's got to start with the initial waking of dead people to life. The good news is not some moral self-help. We would do a wrong thing if we're teaching our children and youth just to be good, we teach them that God loves them and that he said yes to them in Jesus Christ, and we trust that he's inviting them so that they may say yes as well, and something breaks open and takes root in their heart, and sprouts begin to form, and we entrust them to the one who is long for them, who is inviting them, until just like Pepper or just like you and me, we get adopted and renamed and brought into a new family and brought along a new way that we may bear fruit, not because we're good, but because we're alive. Our world desperately doesn't need more advice. Our world desperately needs a message of hope that proclaims that Jesus is the reigning Lord of heaven and earth and all people are invited into life with him. I hope you understand that we don't will the fruit into existence. The fruit only grows to the degree to which we have been planted, rooted, alive in him. And then what? We remain in him, sustained and strengthened in Jesus, our source of life. Remember the scene, the setting in which Jesus is saying these words. He's using this well-known illustration of the gardener walking through the vineyard. And he's doing something interesting because he's saying that my father is the gardener walking through. But he's not just talking about Israel being the vineyard. He says, no, no, I am the vineyard. I am the vine. I am reorienting the life and way of God the gardener in and through me. And you are branches when you make your dwelling and home in me and my life and my way. He's telling these disciples this on his way to the cross. And in John 14, which Kelly read earlier about the way, the truth, and the life, that comes immediately after a conversation where Jesus says, hey, I'm headed out, but you know the way I'm going. And they say, uh, excuse me, we don't know the way. I preached this text at a funeral two weeks ago, and I think it's, 
such a powerful word to those of us who are grieving and wondering what the next step holds. Because Thomas and the disciples say what we're all thinking. Jesus, we don't know the way. And then when Jesus says you do, it's because the way is a person. It's not a plan. It's not seven steps to spiritual success. The way is a person. The truth is a person. The life is a person. And the degree to which we have said, Jesus, I'm yours. I am rooted my whole life in you, orienting my whole life in you. We find truth and life. We get strengthened and sustained. And what's powerful about this, and I want to offer this to you as a prayer to pray this week. When you make your home in him, he makes his home in you. So here's the prayer. Whatever you're stepping into, whenever you feel anxiety rushing over you, whenever you feel uncertain, whenever you're racked with questions, would it help to pause and say, Jesus, abide in me as I abide in you? I want to read this passage not as, hey, I will abide in you, but only if you abide in me. No, I don't think that there's a condition. I think that Christ is within you. Christ is surrounding you. Christ is around you. But the degree to which you're aware of it and awake to it and conscious of it and drawing on that life, that's the crucial question. You don't have to worry about him forsaking you. The question to ask this week is, have I forsaken him? And if the answer is yes, understand that there is grace and an invitation to turn and find him ready and waiting with a prayer like, Jesus, abide in me as I abide in you. Bringing yourself back to the conscious awareness that to be with Jesus means that he is with you. To bring yourself to conscious awareness that to learn from Jesus means that he's teaching you. This Bible I brought has red letters filled to the brim of what he's showing and still speaking through the ages. And to even sit in stillness with him is to dare to believe that his presence can surround and sustain you even in the silence. It's also to live like Jesus, remembering, coming to conscious awareness that he also lives in you. So I want to give you two real interior big questions for you to journal. They're on the screen. And I'm going to give you one in the comments. And that's one that if you would like to share, we invite you to share. The comment question is this. What's something you've learned about God in the last year? What's something you've learned about God in the last year? Because he's taught you something. And you may have thought you've forsaken him, but maybe you found him more gracious than you realize. What's something you've learned about God in the last year? And then, if you want to take a picture of this or write this down in your journal, I'd invite you to sit with these bigger questions. Am I more loving, generous, compassionate, truthful, patient, 
faithful. Fill in the blank with the fruit of the Spirit. Am I more of those things now than I was a year ago? And whatever my answer is to that interior deep question, does it have anything to do with the degree of my remaining in Him? I think one of the biggest tragedies in the church in America today is how many people have claimed to walk with Jesus for decades and decades and they're just mean as snakes <laughs> and they're unforgiving and they're stingy and they're giving Christ a bad name because it ain't just enough to watch a live stream or to go to a church if you're not allowing Christ to pervade your being and you're not allowing yourself to remain in him, to be with him, to learn from him, how to live like him and to draw on him the source and strength that we need to be transformed by him and bear fruit. The second truth about growth. Growth happens when God prunes what's draining, distracting, or destroying us. So that we can bear better fruit. We moved into a new house at the end of the summer. And the previous owners were gardeners. And they had beautiful landscaping in the front. They had beautiful landscaping in the back. And we just thought, oh, this is great as we're swimming and having people come in and out so that they wouldn't see the lack of decorations inside. We would just go to the backyard and say, look at these bushes. We have mint back here and lantanas. And these are big old green onions and these big stalks of like, I don't know, those big leaved things that look like it's tropical. We've got these big, beautiful bushes that were blooming, and it's lovely. Well, fast forward to our first winter here, and it looks a hot mess because they were gardeners, and we are not. So a couple of weeks ago, we had our neighbor over, and we were sitting in the backyard drinking coffee, and he's looking at this sad state of affairs back there. And I kind of wanted to bring him back inside to show him the no decorations because this is not a good look. And he says, look, it sounds crazy, but you just got to cut it all down. And I didn't mention to you that this neighbor has basically converted half of their front yard into a full-blown garden. And some people in this room have been to my house when these come over with a sack full of Kroger tomatoes and peppers from a grocery sack of stuff he just pulled off of his front yard. So I might not be a gardener, but I trust him enough to know that if we were to cut these things down to the bulb, they'll come back better. But the thing is that I was still resisting the cutting. So because we have good neighbors... He came over and did it for me. <laughs> and let me tell you how much better it looks. But I'm still in this place that it seems counterintuitive. It seems counterintuitive to pull up to my house and see the emptiness of the front flower beds. It, it seems counterintuitive to not see the big, brown, droopy, dead, tropical plant. But I'm trusting that it's going to come back better, even though it's been trimmed down. I think this is the thing when we think about our own lives and our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups. Whatever it is that you don't want to put into the comments, I'm not asking you to do it. But whatever it is that you would write in your journal, 
whatever it is that in your moments of self-reflection, you say, I think this thing is draining me. I think that this habit is distracting me. I think that this hang-up is destroying me. And it seems counterintuitive, even after you name it, because you can't imagine the look of your life without it. Because it's grown up so much that to prune it seems too painful and the loss of it seems too unusual or impossible. But we need to remember that though pruning is painful, it is an act of love to remove what drains, distracts, and destroys us because pruning leads to greater acts of life. This is what Jesus is teaching us. Yes, he removes the lifeless branches because they're not bearing fruit. It's fruitless. And I wonder if he's not thinking and the disciples are not thinking of Judas, who was a branch for three years and yet shows no signs of life and has removed himself from the equation. I wonder if it grieves the heart of God when sometimes the pruning is almost too complete. But for those that are remaining on the vine, he prunes back what's draining, distracting, or destroying us so that we would what? Bear more fruit. Earlier when I was reading the passage, when I said prune, I said clean, because this is a word that even gardeners would use, and this is a word that would have been very familiar with them in Jesus' original context to clean it. And that's why it makes sense when he says, you are already what? Clean. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the people, look, who answered the call of discipleship to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow him. The word that he's spoken to them is the good news that he is king and you can follow him and orient your life around him. And even though you've denied yourself and these things have been pruned and these things have been swept away, they find in themselves a life more free and a life eternal. You're already clean Because you've denied yourself, you've taken up your cross, you're following me. And even when you need more pruning, like tomorrow when you abandon me at the cross, when I meet you again, I'm going to send you out again. Because you've learned something from this. And Peter still goes out to feed the sheep and do even more fruitful things in this world. God's pruning, though painful, is an act of love to remove what drains, distracts, and destroys us because pruning is actually leading to greater acts of love and life in our world. Y'all, we think that spiritual growth and discipleship is up and to the right. You see what I'm doing here? (laughs) We don't have a slide for it. We're going to mime it. But the truth is that spiritual growth discipleship, you ready for it, actually is this kind of line. Look at these special effects. Those of you listening on the podcast, (laughs) I'd be blowing your mind right now. I'm glad we have Miguel here still. 
It's a twisty, turny, up and down and back and forth. But here's the thing I want you to write down and take away. Growth is not about perfection. It's about progress. It's about progression. The thing about pruning is that it is a piece of our journey. It's not in spite of our growth. It is for our growth. It's not about perfection. It is about progression. Is our face and our feet still set in the same direction, still fixed on Jesus, even after a crazy week? Here's some journal questions for you. What in my life is in need of pruning or is in the process of getting pruned? I want to add one that's not on the screen, so listen up. Do I perceive this pruning as an act of love that is leading to my growth? Do I perceive this pruning as an act of love that is leading to my growth? I don't know how the bushes in my backyard felt as they were being cut down. But I know that when spring comes, if they could think this way, they would think how grateful they are that they're able to grow back better. The third truth and final truth about growth I want to share with you is that growth happens with, by, and for others. Just to give you the short answer, the fruit ain't all for you. The grapes that grow on a vine don't get re-eaten by some Venus flytrap leaves. <laughs> the fruit is for others. But more than that, growth happens with, by, and for others. Let me describe to you what I mean. To explain this I want to look at a big picture of discipleship, and it'll be here on the screen. The nuts and bolts of how this works itself out in our community ebbs and flows over the years, pandemic or otherwise. We're constantly trying to sort out where we need to shore up, but the big picture of discipleship should always look like this, because this is what we see with Jesus himself and his first disciples. The first is a focus on content. There's a lot that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. And so there's always a focus on content, what Jesus taught. We can see this in our weekly teaching. Toby teaching us last week about loving neighbor. We see this in our weekly teaching. We see this in our weekly discussion, the content of our groups processing what we're learning and living. We have done less of this this past year because of the realities of COVID, but this is why we were always doing these spiritual formation classes to work this out, why we were doing retreats to go and be with Jesus and to really zero in. There's a focus on content. The second element of the big picture of discipleship is this, a formation of character. It's not just what Jesus said and did, but how Jesus did it that matters. I think Jesus was not just full of truth. John tells us in chapter 1, he was full of grace and truth. We abide in Jesus. We get sharpened by our relationships with others. Sometimes it feels 
pruning when you're sitting down with another person or connecting with another person. And they do the equivalent of splashing cold water on your face and say, hey, quit. Hey, get out of your head. Hey, let's call you up. The formation of character is vital in discipleship. In the sharpening with others and abiding, rooted, sustained in prayer and spiritual disciplines. Third, we follow Jesus' commission. That's the third piece of the puzzle of the big picture of discipleship. How does this work in nuts and bolts? It ebbs and flows. It's bringing your kids along to the neighborhood table. And may it grow back better in Jesus' name one day. It's showing up to serve our neighbors at the clothes closet at Rockin' Summer. And more than that, it's just loving your neighbors because what the world needs is more listening and merciful and present people. And it's how you gospel. It's how you invite others, not just to church, but into life with Jesus to say, I have given him my life and I've received so much more in return. But whether it's a focus on content, a formation of character, or following Jesus' commission, understand this. It's all within the context of community with God and others. You understand that God himself is a community. It is being with a capital B, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so then when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, comes, he doesn't do it alone. He brings on others. And then he says, go get more. And we see the rest of the New Testament and even down to the ages of the building of a kingdom community because growth happens with others. And because our faith is other-centered, it's fleshed out by forgiving, bearing with, loving, serving, giving. And this forms us so that we might bear fruit for others so that they might be invited into a relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? The fruit is an outcome of our relationship and abiding in the vine, but the fruit is for others, so that they might see and believe and then bear fruit, so that the next person might see and believe and then they might bear fruit all the while with God and each other, being formed by God and each other, and ultimately being formed for God and each other. A couple more reflections and we're going to end. Here's the comment question for you again. It's not on the screen, but it should be in the chat box. What fruit do you see sprouting up in your circle or community this year? What are the signs of life breaking through this winter? What fruit do you see sprouting up in your circle or community this year? And then for your journal, what's the fruit or church is bearing? What's the fruit my life is bearing? This is going to feel weird because you're like, I don't know. I'm supposed to talk about myself. Would you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I'm still working on you. I'm still working in you. Show a little love. There is fruit in your life. And if you don't feel comfortable answering for yourself, ask the person watching next to you. Do you see any signs of life or fruit in my life? 
And finally, what fruit from others has nourished my life? I want to end with this image. Whatever the nuts and bolts, I hope you've understood that growth as disciples involves growing new disciples together. However it's done, it's done together. I mentioned Pastor Rich Viotas earlier in this message. He has a book called The Deeply Formed Life, and I commend it to you. It's a great and holistic treatment of spirituality for this emerging generation with practices and teaching that is really important. But there's an image that struck me from the introduction, and it's the image of a redwood tree. You see this redwood tree there in the center of your screen? Do you see for scale this person standing off to the side looking up? In his introduction, Rich Viotas talks about how he went to this conference in the Northwest, and it was in and amongst the redwood trees at this retreat center, and he arrived early and just stood in awe of these enormous trees. Some of you I know have seen them with your own eyes. So when they were gathering together for the conference, this host pastor explained that these redwood trees that they see before them can grow up to 400 feet. These redwood trees, 200 to 400 feet tall. That's, if you're really trying to get your head around it, about half the height of the green building in downtown Dallas, the Bank of America Plaza. If you're really familiar with downtown, the old mercantile building, the old Art Deco building with the clock on top, it's that high. While they're growing 200 to 400 feet tall, this host pastor explained to Rich and others that their roots only go down, you want to guess? Five to six feet. So the pastor goes on to explain how is it possible that these enormous trees can stand so strongly and centered up when it's only so shallow underneath the surface. They're centered and strong because the roots are entwined with other roots of the trees near them. While the roots only go down five to six feet, he explained that some redwood tree roots go out as wide as a hundred feet forming a network of support throughout the entire area to help keep centered and strong. I think this is a powerful image, especially when we're doing this at a distance. Because there's a, a vine that roots us across time and space and distance that can reach further than 100 feet to, to help and support even when we feel like we're in jeopardy of falling over. We're entwined with one another. The discipleship ecosystem is one sustained by Jesus and entwined with others. We draw on His strength to sustain us and strengthen us. 
but we're not alone on the vine. We grow disciples together. And whatever it looks like, may we never stop inviting others into a relationship with Jesus by baptizing, teaching, and sending them on mission together. Let's pray, and I'd like to ask our worship team to come back as we close our time. If you haven't already, if you would grab a piece of bread, a piece of juice, or wine, and join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful for this technology, this ability to hear a word from you, and we pray that that's what we heard, not just from me, but from you, from your powerful words in John 15, and the powerful invitations of the Spirit of God within us and around us. Please bless us as we respond through Christ our Lord. Amen. Tonight's benediction was written by Aubrey Smith. May our loyalty be to Christ and his unshakable kingdom, and our lives be wholly aligned with his mission. May we grow in teaching God's word faithfully, following Jesus obediently, and serving one another joyfully. May God grant us understanding of how high, how wide, how deep, and how long is God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And may we grow into faithful emissaries of that love in our neighborhoods, our city, our nation, and to the ends of the earth. May the Spirit empower us to bear the cross of risk, rejection, exile, shame, and sorrow as our Savior bore it so that the world might know his life and joy. May we labor for his kingdom in hope and perseverance with our eyes fixed on Jesus who goes before us. May the light of Christ shine in us as he sends us out. Go in peace.